Thank you. No worries. Matt, I think we should give it another two minutes and then we'll start. No problem. I have all the time in the world. Chacham, your wife told me last time that you know uh, Rabbi Miller from Los Angeles. Yeah, how do you know Rabbi Miller from Los Angeles? My father used to, he used to be my Rav's, my father's Rav. Wow, I love I, I, as a kid, my parents would take me there on the high holidays. There's been a present. And wow. that was a very special place. It was a very unique individual. I, I mean, I was a kid, so I don't remember so much of him, but, but I, what I remember was very special. Right. So you, now you have uh, Mimun. You have Mimun next to you. Yeah, now he's in uh, San Diego. Baruch Hashem. Yeah. Okay, we'll give it one more minute and then we'll start. <clears throat> Okay. Um, okay, I think we're going to start. So, uh, hello everyone, and welcome back to another member's Chabura Shiur. Today is the third installment of an eight part series on Hilchot Kashrut with the one and only Rabbi Natan Halevi. Last week we spoke about Tevilat Kelim, and today we will dive into Hirshar Kelim. As usual, all our Shiurim are recorded and accessible on our website. Uh, the source sheet for today has been posted on the WhatsApp group and uh, we'll be shared again in the chat box. If you have any questions, please hold on to them to the end when, please God, there will be much time for questions. Uh, with that said, Chacham, it is a privilege and honor to have you with us, and the floor is yours. Thank you so much, Ohad, always for being there, for welcoming me, for saying nice things about me, and thank you to all of you for coming back to School Mitzvot. We are jumping into part two of last week's class, but part three of our Kashrut class, and the reason I say part two of last week's class is because these halachot that we're going to study today are a natural uh, byproduct, or they come from these verses that we focused on last week in the context of Tevilat Kenim. And this week we're going to focus on that context of Hechshel Kenim. Now there are those who say Hechsharat Kenim, and uh, Alam prefers the term Hechshel Kenim, and therefore I use it as well. Uh, if you look at footnote one at the bottom, I copied from my third edition of the Hishalom, in which I will use this word sometimes of kosher. And we know that the word kosher is not really a word. The word is kasher. As it seems that Eastern European Jews transliterated the word kasher with a kamatz that goes, oh, so it became a kosher. And then kosher was spelled K-O-S-H. And then kosher became kosher. And today, if you say kasher, many people don't even know what you're talking about. Now, the same is true with 
lehachshir. So I would tell somebody the way lehachshir that that kli or the way to do a hechshel and that kli. And rather, what they'll prefer me to say is kashering. So please don't get offended by the grammatical incorrectness of that word. Uh, rather, I'm preferring to use a term that many people may understand, even though it may not have originated with us. As Ohad mentioned, I will stay here as long as necessary to take questions at the end. Uh, if you have something pressing that you can't get forward without, you're welcome to just unmute yourself and ask. Uh, but let's begin learning. Why wait? So we are on page one of the source sheet. Then I'll review again the verses that we mentioned last week. So this is in the context of Aharon HaKohen, Elazar, the son of Aharon HaKohen, taking the Jewish people out to war. Elazar the Kohen tells the men of the army, Habayim and Mechama were getting ready for war. Zot Chukata Torah. This is the law of the Torah. Asher Tziva Adonai Moshe, which Akadosh Baruch has commanded Moshe. Achet Azahav v'Takesef v'Tanechoshek v'Tabarzel v'Tabedil v'Tafarit. And mentions here six types of metals, which we learned already last time. That six types of metals are. Uh, just a generic term for metal. So we're going to understand them that it means all metal. Anything that was used in fire, will come through fire and now will be permissible for use. But it must be purified first with the waters of Lida. We already discussed last time that there's two interpretations of that. Though our Chachamim understand this in terms of Halakha to mean that it has to go through a Mikveh as well. And anything that is not used in fire, it's used in heat, but not fire, will go through water. You will cleanse your clothing, you will wash them on the seventh day, you will become clean. And then you can return back to the camp. So, whereas last week we focused on those words, all the halakhot that are connected to immersing utensils in a mikveh. This week, we're not going to deal with the mikveh almost at all. We may touch on it lightly for just a moment. But today, we're going to talk about the flip side. So we know that when we buy utensils from a non-Jew, we studied this already last week, it must first go through a mikveh before it comes to us, even if it's never been used before. Just the fact that the purchase was transferred from someone non-Jewish to someone Jewish requires that it should go through a mikveh. Today, we're focusing on the other side of this. And that is what happens if the utensil that we're buying or just the utensil that we have in front of us has been used previously for something that is not kashet. So the classic case that you might think about is you go to the store, but it's not a regular store. It's a thrift store. It's a secondhand store. It's a garage sale in someone's yard or whatever other context you might buy used utensils in. Put aside the issue of taking them to the mikveh. The question is, how do I take something that was previously used for non-kashet food and make it permissible for me to use in a kasha fashion. Now, this inevitably will apply to situations where we wish to make our homes kasha, or we're traveling to in a hotel, in an Airbnb, in a rental vacation spot, whatever it might be, we're going to come across literally hundreds of scenarios in which we may need to use a pot, a pan, an oven, a stovetop, whatever it might be, a bowl, a cup, a mug, all of those things we need to figure out how do we use them in such a way? How do we make, prepare them in such a way that we're able to use them? Now, I forgot at home my box of little pots and pans that you may have seen 
asking for my Pesach videos. So today you'll have to use perhaps your imagination a little bit. I will try to see if I have anything else here that I can use for demonstration purposes. But God willing, in the next cycle, we will have a chance to look at those little toy pots and pants. For right now, let's focus on the sources in front of us. Let's review the Mishnah from last week. You take utensils of food use from a non-Jew. Those that need to be immersed, you immerse. Those that need to be yagir, they go through a hagala process. Hagala is the process of boiling. So you boil them. Those that you have to burn in the fire, you burn in the fire. Hashipud, and skewers, and other such things that go in the fire. You must make them kashel to the fire. Hasakim, okay, that's ready. Let it tell. Now let's look at the Gemara here. Uh, the Gemara is forced to be. Let's read this in English. The sages taught, and there are obviously some filler words here that are filled in by the Steinzel's translation, Rabbi Steinzel's translation of the Gemara, but none of them are going to take us away from the chat here. The sages taught, one who purchases utensils from the Gentiles must prepare them for use in the following manner. So you buy something from the green. Now you want to use them. With regard to items that the non-Jew did not use, one immerses them and they are pure. So it's a brand new item. You buy it in the store. All you have to do is put it in the mikveh and mehenta uh, I like people. What can I tell you? And the things that were used in a cold way, all types of utensils, cups, jugs, flasks, you use them for cold drinks or foods. You wash them well, and you immerse them, and now they're permissible for use. All kinds of other things like pots, pans, things that you use in, in hot, the heat, those things require Hagalah, and now they are Tehorin. And you Hagalah, and you take them to the Mikveh, and then they are pure. And things that you use on the fire, and things that go on fire, the Gemara says you must first burn them in fire, and take them to the Mikveh, and then they are pure and permissible to be used. So you find here already, a few different types of nechshel kinim, and I'm going to list them simply if you want to write them down. We'll enter them at length later. But for right now, there's the first object which requires no nechshel at all. This is an object that it's brand new. All you have to do is take it to the mikveh. Those are the items we discussed last week. Then there are things that need hadacha. Those are things that are they were used for cold foods. We know that cold foods don't give off flavor into utensils, and because of that, all they require is to make sure they are clean. So they have to be washed, and you're able to use them. We call that in Hebrew, hadacha, literally, to wash, to scrub them, to wash them, to make them clean. The next level is hadala. Hadala is something that was used with liquids, but not necessarily in the fire. So think of a pan that was put on a, on a stove or something like that. Those things are uh, required to be made kasher through Haganah. And then ultimately, you have libun, which is fire. Things that are used actually in the fire require hechshel in the fire. Before I go forward, let me explain to you the reason why these utensils have to go through fire, water, or washing. In the words of our chachamim, kach the way that things have absorbed flavor, that's the way that they explete flavor. So if something had absorbed non-kasher flavor in fire, then the only way to get the non-kasher flavor out is through fire. 
if something absorbs non-kasher flavor through water, liquids, oil, water, then the only way to get rid of the non-kasher flavor is going to be through water. And then if there are things that really didn't absorb flavor, all they need to do is just to be clean in order to make sure that you are able to use them. This rule is another term you should write down. The way that it absorbs is the way that it expletes. Does that, apply to the temperature, does that apply to the temperature of the fire you use, for example, or does it apply to fire full stop? We're going to discuss that in the, one of the sources here. It's a very good question. We're going to discuss that together. Okay. Yeah. So let's just say now we'll use, we'll use generic categories. So anything that you want to make kasher, you have to figure out how did it become not kasher. The way that it became not kasher is the way that now you make it kasher. Moving on to source four, the Gemara points out a seeming contradiction. Regarding utensils that one used before making them kasher, there's one Tana who says that the food prepared in there is kasher, and one opinion that says the food that's prepared in them is not kasher. So you have the same situation. I went to a non-kosher... I went to a home where the person wasn't Jewish. I took their pot and I boiled spaghetti inside of their pot. Now that pot before was used to boil pig feet soup, okay? It's really not kasher, let's imagine that. Now I boiled my pasta in there. One place it says that it's kasher. Another place says that it's not kasher. So the Gemara has to understand what's the contradiction here between these two opinions. It's not a problem. There's a fundamental dispute between the Chachamim, whether the flavor that is imparted into the food, if it's a good flavor, meaning it makes my food taste better, the food is not spoiled, then some say that, that for sure we say that's a suhu. What happens if the food that is being expleted from the pot into my pasta, it makes my pasta not taste good? So some Chachamim say it's mutav. Some Chachamim say that that is a suhu. And if you look then in source five, Amar Avchiyah Bered Ravuna, Ravchiyah, the son of Ravuna says, Lo asrat Torah ela kedera bat yoma, delav noten tam nidamu. The Torah only forbids us from using a non-kosher utensil with, in the day, bat yoma. Bat yoma, you may hear the term ben yomo. These are just masculine and feminine of the same term. Bat yoma, ben yomo mean, the Torah says, if this pot was used to boil pig's soup, it is forbidden to be used for 24 hours. After 24 hours, mikan from this point on, the pot goes back to becoming completely kasher. Your pig pot becomes kasher. Your meat pot becomes parve. Your dairy pot becomes parve. Your chametz pot becomes kasher lepesach. Your kasher lepesach pot becomes neutral. Everything after 24 hours is the great reset. The reason for it is very simple. After 24 hours, the absorptions inside of the walls of the pot spoil, and they no longer become food that is giving off good flavor. And therefore, even if there is still pig absorption in the wall of your pot, if it expletes that flavor into your chicken soup, it's not a good flavor. And therefore, that not good flavor is not a problem according to Halakha. 
And so the only time there's a biblical problem with a pot, a pan, a plate, a bowl, uh, any other utensil you might think of is within 24 hours. So the Gemara says, so are you telling me that after 24 hours, everything in the kitchen resets itself and it's all kasher? The Gemara says, kind of. Gizera, a rabbi has made a decree. There is a rabbinic decree that says once 24 hours pass, the pot maintains its original status, not on a Torah level, but on a rabbinic level. The reason? Because maybe we'll come to use a pot that wasn't uh, 24 hours old, meaning it's 23 hours old. And so our rabbis wanted to make sure that we wouldn't violate a biblical prohibition. And because of that, they made a decree that... It's, there still is a rabbinic prohibition after 24 hours to use a not kosher pot or pen. So let me summarize to you the halakhot that we've learned so far. When I take a pot, a pan, a knife, a fork, a spoon, whatever was used in heat from a non-Jewish person, and I use it, if it's within 24 hours, then that is prohibited to do on a Torah level. After 24 hours, it's prohibited to do only on a rabbinic level. Why is it prohibited only on a rabbinic level? Because no ten time done when bad flavor is imparted, that's no longer something that we must concern ourselves on a biblical level. The Torah did not prohibit that. And on a rabbinic level, it's only prohibited because, because maybe we'll come to use a pot or a pan that didn't wait 24 hours before it was used. So if I could just tell you as follows, in your kitchen, Every pot and pan after 24 hours becomes parve all over again. Now, I borrow the word parve. Again, it's, we don't have that word in Sephardic literature. Uh, but it's not besari. It's not chalavi. It becomes neutral. Everything in the world becomes neutral. The same works for Pesach. The same works for any other thing that you might think of. And now we're going to find ourselves dealing with hechsher kemim, the kashring of utensils. And perhaps it may make sense to you when I tell people the rule, always wait 24 hours before you do hechsher kemim on anything. The reason is because after 24 hours, it's not even really an issue. There's a gezerah, fine. To deal with the gezerah, we are machshir kenim. We do this hachsharat kenim. But we don't actually need to do that on a biblical level, only on a rabbinic level. So there's a Torah level and a rabbinic level. Within 24 hours, after 24 hours. After 24 hours, almost any mistake that you make in your kitchen with the meat or milk, pot or pan, already the whole world becomes better. Because 24 hours later, you are no longer dealing with a Torah prohibition, only with a rabbinic prohibition. Any questions so far on anything that I just said? I obviously will elaborate on everything I said so far. Just a question about the taste. Of course. Is it is it binary that it's either good taste or bad taste, or is neutral, like not good or not bad, also an option? This is what neutral taste, I guess, is not really a taste. What is a neutral taste? A neutral taste means uh, that it's not a taste. Like, let's say it's it's something from a pig or whatever, but it doesn't give it bad taste. Like, I think there's like a whole, like, isn't there like a whole discussion about like certain organs that don't have a, not sure if there's a taste, like maybe Gita Nasha or something. Like, is it, even is it only good or bad? Bees, bees legs in the honey, for example, the bees legs, they're... Uh, do they really give taste? And if they give taste, it's a good taste now. That's a good question. We're gonna we're gonna discuss about taste eventually here. That's a good question. Rabbi, can you discuss uh, metal pots that have linings such as uh, Teflon and other linings 
in light of fire within 24 hours and after 24 hours, the need for uh, having to use fire within the 24 hours or after the 24 hours for those types of pots. If you if you look, by the way, the last few pages here, I've copied my a whole chapter from my book. I will go through everything that you have in your kitchen at the end of this class so you know exactly what to do with it. Before I go through details, I want to teach you fundamental principles. Once you have Thank those you. principles, everything else in the world is going to be answered for you already. So those are all good questions. In most places, what they do is they skip the process and they just deal with the details. Do this for that, do that for this, that. And then everybody just has a, a bunch of rules that don't necessarily make sense. Here, I wish to teach you an equation. You plug in all the variables into that equation and hopefully you'll get your answer as to what it is that you need to do or not do at all. I will tell you, for the sake of transparency, that there are things that Maran writes in Shulchan when it comes to Hikshar Kamim. I'm not certain, I'm not certain how he reached the conclusion using the same equation that he has given us in order to uh, do Hikshar Kamim. And therefore, for me, I always prefer the zooming out of the equation and the details. Whoever sent them will have to answer for them and we will get to the Vatashem. Uh, if you look on page three, I copied here the Ramban's laws. This is the Ramban's laws of Tivinat Kilim and Hechshel Kilim. Really, what we should do is sit down and read eight chapters here, eight sentences, and we'll be done with the whole shield. But why make it easy if we can make it complicated? So, Bazar Hashem will make it complicated by going to page four. Bazar Hashem Maran talks about Hechshel Kilim in two different places. So, there's obviously one section where he's talking about how to make utensils kasher. That's going to be in Yoreda, chapter 121. There's one other place where Maran is going to talk about Hikshar Kemim. Tell me which other context Maran is going to talk about making your kitchen kasher for something. Pesach. Pesach, very good. Maran in the laws of Pesach, chapter 451 of Olachayim, the first volume, talks about Hikshar Kemim in the context of Pesach. I am going to be jumping around between the laws in Yoreda for regular year-round year round use, and then the laws of Pesach for Pesach use. There are contradictions between the two chapters, and ultimately what you can attribute most of that to is that by Pesach, there are stringencies because of Hamids that don't exist year-round when it comes to regular Kashrut, but even by Pesach, they are just that. They're stringencies that are not necessarily law, and instead of, of getting stuck on two separate chapters and just trying to understand both, I'm going to focus on Tevilat Kirim, Yachshat uh, Kirim, as I've organized them by topic, we'll get through all of them by jumping around different places in Shulchan Aruch, but by giving you those equations and fundamentals that you need. And let's begin, therefore, on source six on page four. Malan writes, in the beginning of the laws of Hikshel Kelim, in chapter 121 of min Yishanim, someone who buys, takes old utensils, meaning used utensils from a non-Jew, the way the non-Jew used the utensil is the way that you make the utensil kasher. This is the same understanding of the rule I told you in the beginning. The way it was used is the way you make it kasher. And therefore, if you purchased food utensils that were used for cold, like uh, bowls or cups and things like that, you wash them. And you have to clean them very well to make sure that the surface 
that has maybe residue left over from the cold non-kosher food is cleansed. Then you wash them with water, you immerse them in the mikveh, and they are permissible to be used. So here you find the first case, the utensil that's used cold. Imagine that flavor only transfers through heat. And in a situation where there is no heat, then flavor has not been absorbed into the walls of the utensil. And because of that, the only way that you, the only thing you need to do in order to make it kasher is to wash it very well and immerse it in a mikveh. And then you are allowed to use all of those things that you bought at the garage sale. In source eight, Maran continues, If you purchased utensils that were used through heat, whether they are metal, or they are wood or stone, first you do hagala, you immerse them in a boiling pot of water, and then you immerse them in a mikveh. If they are metal, and then they are mutarim. What does it mean if they are metal? Because wood and stone don't require a mikveh. So after you boil them, it's already permissible to use them. The metal requires a further step. After you boil that pot, you now have to take it to a mikveh. And if you reverse the order, you first took it to the mikveh, and then you made it kasher, it's mutar. There is an opinion that says, that if you reverse the order, you have to do it the right way all over again. Maran does not rule that way, and so it does not make a difference which order you do it, but the original way is to do the hechsher killing first, to pass it through heat first, and then once it's kasher, to take it to the mikveh, and we're going to discuss that a little bit later in the shiur. So, we said by utensils that are used with fire, look in the laws of Pesach and page and, and uh, source 10, Utensils that are used with fire. Like uh, skewers and things like that. The grates of a barbecue. They require libun. What does the word libun mean? What's the root of that word? Lavan, white. Very good, white. I mean, you see metal when it heats up. Yeah? Like coals. What color do they turn? They turn white. Yes? And how much do you have to do libun on them until it gets so hot that there are sparks coming off of the metal? Maran, there in the laws of Pesach in section hey, in source 11, you have to make utensils kasher the way that they were used. If the utensil was used in a klirishon, let's now make some order. And give me one second. I'm going to go get some paper goods over here so I can give you an example. I brought a few utensils that I have lying around. Forgive me for the lack of sophistication, but we will make do with what we have. You have a pot on the fire. 
this is my plot on the fire. You understand? It's a cup, so I'm not saying a shekel. This is just for pretending that this is a pot. Use your imagination, my friends. And you have a utensil that you use in the pot. So this pot is sitting on the fire. In halakha, this is called a klirishon, a first utensil, al-hayish, that's sitting on the fire. Yes? As is opposed to when you take it off the fire, it's still the klirishon, it's just no longer sitting on the fire. So this is sitting on the stove. I now take this, this, uh, this ladle, whatever it is, I'm mixing spaghetti here, and I put it in there. In which way did this become not kasher? It became not kasher by sitting on a stovetop, on the fire, in a pot of water. And therefore, the way to make this kasher is to take a pot, boil it with water, and immerse my ladle inside of it, and then this becomes kasher pesach or kasher in any other which way it becomes kasher, it is now neutral, and you can do with it what you want. What happens if I take my spaghetti and I pour it into my plate? Because that's where I eat it from. And then I take my fork and I eat from my fork my spaghetti. How did this become chametz or not kasher? In a second utensil that is not on the fire. And therefore, that's the way that I make it kasher. I take a pot of water, I boil it, I pour it into a second container, and I put all my utensils inside of it. And if you have a utensil that is somewhere in the middle of these two, so you have something that you use in between. So for example, I take my chamin on Shabbat, and I pour it into a serving bowl. And this serving bowl goes around the table, and everybody takes from it and puts in their plate. So this is now, how did this become not kasher? Because we poured from the fire into this utensil. So how do we make this kasher? I must boil water and pour that water all over the utensils that were used with pouring from the fire. What's important to know here, that there is a hierarchy. The hotter something is, the more multi-purpose it has in the world of kashrut. So I can take a pot that was used on the stove with liquids, and instead of boiling it again, I can instead put it in a fire and it will become kasher. I can take my fork that I used on my plate that had food from my serving utensil that had food from a pot, and I could put it inside of boiling hot water and that will work. But really this fork requires a minimal amount of heat in order to make it kasher. And so, Many of the utensils that we have in our kitchens already are the ones that are on the fire. We have those that we use in the fire. So imagine pots, pans. Then we have our ladles and spatulas and spoons and the things that we mix our food with. That's one category. Then we have another category of the utensils that we pour that hot food into. And then we have our forks, knives, and spoons that we use likely to eat out of that container, which is a very low level of heat. And therefore, those are respectively libun, hagala, and we'll get to right now hadafa. What about utensils that were used with cold food? So kol all of the utensils, afilus al even ceramic utensils. We're going to speak about ceramic utensils in a few sources from now. Shnishlamesh behem chametz that you use them for cold chametz. Mutar lehishlamesh behem matza afilu bechamim. You're allowed to use them even for hot matzah. What would be an example of hot matzah?
Knedlach. Knedlach. Matzah balls. Now, are Knedlach really matzah? If it's come out of the oven. If it's what? If it's just come out of the oven. Okay, very good. So if the matzah comes right out of the oven, okay, it's hot. But he said, Knedlach are not really matzah, but it's a very good example. The reason why it's a good example is because when Malan uses the word chametz or matzah, he just means foods that are kashel for Pesach and foods that are not kashel for Pesach. It doesn't actually have to be matzah. Likely, you're not going to have a hot matzah lying around for very long. Even if you're baking your own matzot, how long does your matzah stay hot? Rather, he's saying, let's say you have a bowl. And this bowl is used the whole year for your chametz breakfast cereal. And now it's Pesach morning. And you want to use that bowl for cottage cheese. I don't know. You want to have yogurt. Something you want to have that's cold. That's kashel Pesach. How do you do it? As long as that bowl has been cleaned, being washed with water, you're able to take your, your matzah, your cottage cheese, your kashel Pesach food, and put it there. What if it's hot? What if chametz has only been used in that bowl? I told you breakfast cereals. Only cold. And now you want to have hot food. So what's a hot food? I made myself what hot food could I eat on Pesach morning? Uh, I made myself eggs. scrambled eggs. A very good eggs. Thank you. I take my scrambled eggs and I can put them in a chametz bowl. They're boiling hot. I can put them in a chametz bowl that was only used for cold chametz because there is no more cold chametz in that bowl because that cold chametz never was absorbed into the bowl. It only stayed on the surface of the bowl. And because of that, and once I wash that chametz bowl, I can now use my chametz bowls on Pesach with no further hechsher, aside from the fact that I washed them before Pesach. And if I use hot oatmeal beforehand? Uh, very good. So uh, don't get me stuck on oatmeal for a second, because I'm sure that you all know that oats are very complicated. But let's say you use it for hot cream of wheat. Okay, let's use that. So if you use it for hot cream of wheat, then it would need a hechsher the way that it was used. You'd have to pour hot liquids into that bowl in order to make it kasher, though there's an exception to that rule, which we're going to see in a few sections from right now. Did you not just say a couple of minutes ago, according to its normal use, and if you were to generally use something with cold cereal, but once in the previous six months, you'd use it to make oatmeal, does it then require kashrut according to the hot methodology or to the cold? I would have thought from what you just said, the cold would be applied. Fantastic question. If you look here, jump with me. Why don't we do it right now? Let's look on page 10. Page 10, source 45. Why keep you in suspense? Page 10, source 45. Maran writes in the laws of Pesach, Kol keli, all of the utensils. We look at the majority of its use. How is it usually used? And therefore, even though we sometimes use it even in boiling hot on the fire. Because we usually don't put our bowls in the fire, we usually just pour hot foods into them, then the only way we need to make them kasher is by pouring hot foods, hot liquids into them. The Rama obviously says that that's not the case. The minhag in Ashkenaz is not to care. Once you use it once in a certain way, you have to pasture it that way with, with heat. 
Maran, in 25, the 25th section of that Laws of Pesach in Source 47, he writes, Kol Kli Hashliyah. All Kli Hashliyah, all the drinking utensils. Ben Sanochiyot, Ben Kosot, whether it's the plates or the cups. Mutarim Bishtifah. They're all permissible by washing them. Ben Shem Shashukhit, whether they're glass. Ben Shem Shalets, whether they're wood. Ben Shem Shalmatechet, whether they're metal. Ben Shem Shalcheres, whether they're ceramic. And even though sometimes they put hot bread on those plates or they put hot chametz in those bowls or those cups, because most of the time you only use it for a cold, all you need is to wash it. Because when our rabbis made that decree that after 24 hours something maintains its not kasher status, that only is if you're using it in the way that it's normally used. But if it's not the way that it's normally used, then the rabbis didn't institute a decree there, though the Ramah writes again in Source 45, There are those that are strict, and that is our custom that we don't care that it's been used only once for that purpose, but once it's used that way, we no longer will just wash it and use it, we will acquire Haganah. So this is a fundamental difference between Sefaradim and Ashkenazim as to which utensils require Hikshel and which don't, Depends if it's ever been used or if it's only been used once, meaning is it its regular use or is it an irregular use of that utensil? And therefore, it could be that the bowls that you see for breakfast cereal sometimes were used with oatmeal, sometimes. But really, they're always used for cold breakfast cereals. In such a case, they only would require washing and we would not carry over that decree of our rabbis to also require Haggadah, at least not according to Maran HaShukhan but presumably this makes a difference if you haven't waited 24 hours because if in the last 24 hours you have used it for hot, then you will have to use the hot cushing method. Very good. In the, in the 24 hours, you are correct. In the 24 hours, it's still it's still chametz, whatever it is, still, it's still not kasher. And we're talking about a situation likely where we're dealing with after 24 hours. Let's look here on back in the utensil, which may not be kasher. So, Sources 13 and 14, Malad lists a few things that you cannot make kasher, one of them being pottery, earthenware, ceramic, uh, some of them being um, ivory. These are utensils that the reason why they're not allowed to be made kasher are because we're afraid that you won't do a good job at boiling them or burning them because you might be afraid that they will break. And because of that, we don't really want our pots, our, our ceramic utensils to break. I was once, uh, I came to a wedding, a Jewish wedding. They asked me to come look at something in the kitchen. I went into the kitchen and the guy's like, Rabbi, get out of this kitchen. I don't want rabbis in my kitchen. And what's the big deal with rabbis in your kitchen? He said, we once had a Pesach hotel. They have these things, people, people go away from Pesach. People are so afraid of Jewish holidays that they run away. They'll pay $50,000, $60,000 to run away from their homes because they're so afraid of observing Pesach on their own. So they, they run away to this hotel. And he said, we had a rabbi here. He took a blowtorch and he blowtorched our glass cups. And he blowtorched our dishwasher. And he blow and the plastic in the dishwasher melted together. And I don't want rabbis in my kitchen. That's what the kitchen manager told me. So, uh, well, here you have certain things that you can't make kashel because they would be damaged by heat. And because of that, we don't make them kashel ever. We don't take them from meat to milk. We don't uh, make them kashel from Pesach to uh, chametz to Pesach. There's a few more things. And if you look in source 15, utensils that are made from bricks and dirt, 
those utensils have a problem because the chametz has a hard time coming out of it. Imagine your ceramic pottery that's not glazed. So don't think about your glazed mug. Imagine like the pot you have in your backyard where you plant the plants in. Now imagine putting oil in there, boiling oil in there, and then washing it out. You're likely still going to have a stain over there. There are certain utensils which simply are very difficult to remove the, whatever was absorbed in there. And therefore, we are not makshir, those kenig. This is only when you have to apply a form of heat. If it's cold, it's okay? If it's cold, very good. If it's cold, then it doesn't absorb at all, in which case we wouldn't be concerned about it. That's so a, a ceramic point. knife that's used for sushi, for example, is always used cold. There's no reason you just wash you're, it. You're assuming that you can kasher ceramic. Well, you just said you're it, the kasher. The, well, you knife, just you knife, just said a knife. second ago that cold only is not the issue. So a ceramic knife that's deliberately not metallic, used for sushi, which is always cold. You would imply that if someone had used it for a fish that was not kosher at all, was washed and then used for a fish that was kosher within 24 hours, even was would be potentially okay. Let, let's pause. And I am referring to an Ashkenazi custom, not to kosher knives at all. So, assuming that you can kosher a knife, then yes, there wouldn't be a problem using something cold, even a ceramic knife. There are those that are worried about what's called duchka de sakina, the pressure of the knife that it's considered like heat and it absorbs flavor. When you find me the ceramic knife that absorbs flavors and gives off flavors, then I will change my stance that the knife would be a problem. But yes. I, well, that's the uh, reason to use a ceramic knife so it doesn't absorb the flavors deliberately. Yeah, well, I agree. Um, I'm, trying and to understand, you, I'm trying to understand with the pot, you had the ceramic pot, you had previously told us that uh, if the flavor was a bad flavor that was imparted, then it would be okay. So if you have a ceramic pot that has absorbed oil a week ago, a month ago, and now you quote unquote, put boiling water in it, why can't you use it since any potential flavor that has been imparted from the oil is obviously going to give this a bad flavor? Because even though it's going to give a bad flavor, you have a rabbinic requirement to kosher that utensil. And because our rabbis were afraid that we would not sufficiently kosher our utensils that are made out of breakable materials, they didn't allow us to make those materials kosher. Your question would be a great question. So what happens if I ignored the rabbinic rule and I use that pot anyways? So then, of course, if a person would use that pot anyways, it wouldn't make the food not kosher. That's a very good point that you're bringing up. That after 24 hours, technically that pot no longer makes food kosher, but I'm not able to intentionally use it by making it kashel first because there is no method to make that kashel. Now, what I'm saying is, is kind of true. There are poskim who permit the kashering of ceramic, and we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. As you see, everything is organized by topic. We're going to get to the topic of ceramic in just a few minutes. The Raman, source 16, writes, He's talking about the, there's like a, a nice protector that you can't make kashel, and therefore you're not able to use it. I see my beautiful son, Elchanan, on the screen. Shalom, Elchanan. Thank you for learning Torah. Cash ring from meat to milk. In source 17 and 18, you're going to find an Ashkenazi custom that, that says that it is forbidden to make something meat or dairy into pavlet, meaning you're not allowed to make anything kasher 
unless you are doing it from chametz to Pesach. But in Ashkenaz, there was a custom never to make a meat pot dairy or a dairy pot meat. I'll read to you from the Megillah Abraham. Meaning from this halakha that he's referring to in the Shulchan Aruch, chapter 509, it seems that you are allowed to cast utensils for meat and milk and vice versa. It's a famous thing, Ben Ashkenazim, when they refer to themselves, the whole world, the whole world prohibits this action of casting meat to milk, and they bring it down to the name of a certain Chacham who wrote, the reason for this custom. Shinimia said Ken that if a person constantly transfers their pots from meat to milk, milk to meat, he's gonna have a situation where you only have one pot in your house that you use for everything. And this is forbidden. There's maybe a person will make a mistake. Because of this, in Ashkenaz, they developed a custom, not a law, a custom that Ashkenazim never make utensils that are meat, they don't try to turn them into milk utensils. And they never take milk utensils and turn them into meat utensils. There's a loophole. There's a loophole. If you look in a source 18, the Mishnah Bilwa brings in the second paragraph that the Khatam Sofer, who was one of the famous Ashkenazi uh, rabbis, was very particular in, in all Ashkenazi custom. He writes, the Hecha, the Hagil, that if you are making your utensils kashel for Pesach, and Ashkenazim permit you to make utensils kashel from chametz to Pesach, then at the same time that you make it from chametz to Pesach, you can also transition it from meat to milk or milk to meat. And therefore, Ashkenazim, according to this custom, would keep all of their pots and pans that they wanted to turn from meat to milk, and they would wait until Pesach. And when they are turning it neutral again to be able to be used for Pesach, then they can also reapply it to either meat or milk parts of their kitchen. Though, the Chida, when he heard about this, if you look at the top of page 5 in the left column, in the end of source 19, the Chida, Rabbi Chaim Yosef David Azulai writes, In our place, we do this all the time, that are not used within the last 24 hours. We intentionally take milk utensils and turn them into meat utensils. And the opposite is true also. And we never took into consideration these type of stringencies uh, which have no earlier precedent in Halakha. The Kavachayim, who was again also a very conservative Sephardic rabbi, who wrote a commentary on the, on the, the Shulchan Aruch, writes, uh, from the Chidad, that is the custom in the Sephardic world. If you look in source 21, Chacham said further reiterates this, that he pledges allegiance to the Chidad. Many Sephardim have an affinity to the Chidad, so whatever the Chidad says, that's what they like to do as well. And he writes in the middle of source 21, The reason I had to explain something which is so clear because I heard of a Sephardic rabbi who said that also Sephardim should not convert things from meat to milk or vice versa rather they're only allowed to do it for Pesach and it seems like that rabbi for whatever reason simply uh, forgot momentarily those other rabbis uh, that said that Sephardim never developed this custom In source 22, said adds a little note to the bottom and it says that uh, he found the Shagat Aliyah was one of the famous Ashkenazi. They called him the Roar of the Lion after the name of his book. But they said that when he spoke, he also looked like he was roaring like a lion. Uh, interesting story about the Shagat Aliyah. Shagat Aliyah who lived in the same generation as another rabbi and who wrote a book called Seder Hadorot, 
the two rabbis, one wrote books of Tirpul, of Ashkenazi Talmudic uh, analysis, and then you have the Seda HaDorot, which essentially wrote a Jewish book of history, a lot of stories and telling the stories of all the different generations. They say that Shabbat Aliyad, he once met the Bala Dorot, and he was like looking down at him a little bit. Uh, you're the rabbi, you're the storytelling rabbi. And so the Seda HaDorot tells the Shabbat Aliyad, tell me. It says in the Gemara that one day the Jewish people are going to forget the Torah entirely. What are you doing in order to make sure that the Jewish people don't forget the Torah? He said, listen, inevitably the Jewish people will forget the Torah. But when they see my book and the sharpness of my book and the incredible brilliance of my book, it'll reawaken in them the understanding of the Torah and they'll learn the Torah all over again. And he said, what are you? What is your storybook going to do? He said, my storybook will make sure that if people study the lives of the Chachamim, that they will never forget the Torah in the first place. They won't have to worry about that problem at all. The Shagat Aliyah was an Ashkenazi rabbi who said that this custom was not prevalent everywhere and that this is permissible and that the Magen Avraham was speaking for himself, but not for all of Ashkenazi Chachamim. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein has another loophole in Source 33, that if you sell the utensil, it's not relevant to us right now, but let's say there is an Ashkenazi custom that limits kashering all utensils from meat to milk or from milk to meat, and only permits the kashering of utensils from chametz to Pesach. But that obviously couldn't be the case, that that was always the Ashkenazi custom, because if yes, why would the Ramah even bother to share with us the laws of kashering utensils outside of the context of Pesach? Sources 24 and 25, Maran and the Ramah mentioned kleetz, kleeven, matechet, that utensils of wood, stone, and bone are also able to be kashered. They're all able to be kashered. So it's not that they can't be kashered. They just have to be kashered the same way you would kasher metal. So if you had a wooden bowl that you wanted to make kasher for Pesach, you can make it kasher for Pesach. You just have to make it go through Haganah the same way you would kasher metal. Ceramic utensils and earthenware, Malan writes in source 26, but ceramic Haganah doesn't work. And therefore, you can only use them for cold purposes, but you cannot cash your ceramic. Harapelitz in source 27 brings an opinion that says that because this is a rabbinic decree, there are ways to be lenient, especially if there's a great financial loss. Someone inherited a very expensive set of utensils that are made out of a, something that cannot be cashered. There may be a way to cashier it in different ways. And if that's relevant to any person, you're welcome to reach out to me privately and I'm happy to help you through that. I wanted to bring you to the conversation surrounding glass utensils. And from glass, I wanted to take you to stainless steel. So until now, we've talked about utensils that absorb flavor. And in order to make them kasher, you have to have them give off the flavor. The question is, what about utensils that don't absorb flavor at all? Do those utensils require hechsher or not? In Avot Zerbinatan, a rabbi's tells us, There are three qualities of glass. The first, glass does not absorb and does not exclude. Glass, I don't want to use the word non-porous. Rather, its pores don't absorb or exclude the way that other metals would. The second is you can see through glass. You can see inside of the glass. And then, glass also mimics the environment of where it is. If it's cold outside, the glass will be cold. If it's hot outside, the glass will be warm. When it comes to glass, there are essentially three different understandings of the chakamim, how we deal with glass. I quoted from an article here 
by a rabbi from Yeshivat Arzion, who laid it out very nicely. 29.1. Glass does not absorb. Because glass does not absorb, it doesn't require hakshel at all. The Ravia, the Eshkol, the Rashba, the Meiri, Maran, this is the way that they understand Zaharatha, that a glass cup, a glass cup, not use it for hot or cold, a glass plate, a glass bowl, a glass anything. If you used your glass, you went to a store and you bought glass that was used secondhand. They used to use a pig on it. You take it home, hot pig. They cook it. It's a dish. They put it in the oven. A glass oven saved glass dish. They cook pig in there. You take it home. You wash it off. You can use it for kashel food. What kind of kashel food? Hot food. What kind of hot food? Let's say you want to eat, uh, uh, you want to cook some steaks in there. You can have it. Then you finish that glass uh, utensil. You wash it out. And what can you do with it? You can now make a cheese lasagna for Shavuot inside of there. And then what else can you do? After you're done, you wash it out and you can make your food for Pesach, all of the food for the Seder you want to make inside of that uh, utensil because glass does not absorb and therefore it does not require any kind of hekshel aside from simply cleaning it. The second Didn't opinion... it require the mikveh? Yeah, of course. Yes, thank you. I, like I told you, it does require going to the mikveh if you bought it from someone not Jew. That's a very good point. Thank you. Um, the second opinion is that glass absorbs, but because it's really earthenware, because glass originates in the dirt and the sand, you're not able ever to make that kashel. And the Mordechai and the Smat and Tumat Adeshen, I believe that Chabad Chassidim are of this persuasion as well, that glass, it does absorb. And not only does it absorb, but it can never be kashered because it is a earthenware utensil that cannot be kashered. Source three. Um, can I just clarify? Are we talking about all types of glass? Because there are some glasses, perhaps. I will. I will talk. I will talk about that as well. Pyrex type glasses. Yeah. Thank you. And um, and the third source is that glass absorbs, but it's able to be kashered. The ra'ah and the chidusharibad, the ozawa. Yeah, like anything else, glass absorbs, but like anything else, it can also be kashered. Maran in source thirty rules like the first opinion. Kelezichuchit glass utensils. Even if you use them for hot foods, they don't require any hechshel at all because they do not absorb. And all you have to do is wash them. And once they're washed, those utensils are able to be used. The Rama argues in source 31, there are those who are strict. There are those who say that even Hagalah doesn't work on glass. And that is the custom in Ashkenaz of these countries. The Taz in source 32, he says the rationale behind that is because glass is considered earthenware. And earthenware is not able to be kashered, but he writes, nonetheless, It's simple to him, to the Taz, that according to Ashkenazi custom, there's no prohibition of using glass without kashering it, but that the custom requires it to be kashered. So if glass was used, let's say an Ashkenazi Jew comes to a Sephardic Jew's home, and that glass was used for meat and milk. An Ashkenazi Jew is allowed to eat the food that was prepared in there, the tansin, because it doesn't actually cause any problem. Yet, there is an Ashkenazi custom not to kasher uh, glass back and forth. Harapelitz writes in 33 in his notes on the Shulchan Aruch, that's not published. Harapelitz writes, The custom of the Ashkenazim is to be strict, and I do not understand that custom. It does not make sense to me. If something does not absorb, flavor, then what are you concerned about? Uh, and let's talk for a moment before I get into types of glass and other that disagree with the opinion. 
we are concerned about flavor being absorbed into the pot or the pan or the cup or the bowl. And if flavor is not absorbed, then what is the concern of using that utensil? So let me explain. Take a glass, you know, someone mentioned Pyrex. I'm now gonna be brave here. And I'm gonna tell you that I consider all glass to be, even the ones that are different and the ones that have, I said, no, that's not the case. The glass today has other materials mixed into it. I'm telling you now, on me, I want you to try something. Take a Pyrex dish, yeah? Oven safe Pyrex dish. And fill it up with, what's the spiciest pepper in the world right now? What are they, what are they telling you the spiciest pepper is? The most chavit thing you can imagine, tell me. Don't tell me a radish, please. An hot pepper. Ghost pepper, scorpion pepper. A ghost pepper. A what kind of pepper? A ghost pepper, yeah. You go buy a whole sack of ghost peppers and you chop them up, make sure that those peppers give off all their flavor into the pirate's dish. And you put some water out of it, make a nice stew of ghost peppers. You're making magucha for your Yemenite friends. Yeah, and then you, or scoop, whatever, you're gonna make it hot. You put it in the oven on the highest temperature, let it boil for as long as you want. And then take it out and wash that glass utensil out, fill it up with just plain water, put it back in the oven, let it cook for just as long, take it out with your spoon. I want you to taste that water. And if you taste the ghost peppers in that water, then I will stand up in front of the whole Chavua and the UK and the whole world and tell them I am wrong. But I know that I'm right. And I will tell you that you will not taste even the faintest hint of a ghost pepper. And the mitziut, the fact on the ground is that glass is not absorbed, nor does glass give off flavor. And you can test it because all of the utensils in your home, the glass cup that you had your tea in today, does not taste like the coffee that you drank in it yesterday. And anyone who says that I'm wrong is simply arguing with fact. This is a mitziut. I'm not a halakhic issue here. This is a mitziut issue. What, what about if that, that same experiment would work with metal? Wow. Uh, very good. Look at, uh, I'm going to get there on page nine. Okay, on page nine. Another understanding of the Ashkenazi custom, because it's very difficult to accept that the Ramah says glass can never be kashut. It's really a difficult thing to say. Maran in Yoreda talks about glass utensils. They don't need hechshel. And the Ramah doesn't argue with him. And it seems to be there are a number of Ashkenazi and some Sephardic ones. Uh, I believe Rafsi Pesach Frank was the chief rabbi of Yerushalayim, they understood that the stringency of Ashkenazim not to kasher glass, and they have designated glass utensils for one type of food, is only relevant to Pesach. That's the only place where the Ramah mentions that. But in the rest of the laws of Echshel Kalim, the Ramah doesn't mention it. And from here we know that it's only applicable to Pesach. When I asked uh, the old Ashkenazim of Yerushalayim, of yesterday, not today, the old, they said that they all recall that they use same glass for meat and milk, and only by Pesach they would put away those glasses and use kasher the Pesach glasses. And so even the minhag of Ashkenazim, as I have seen it, aside from today's reinvented Ashkenazim, real Ashkenazim, the originals, uh, they use glass, they use glass, and I've heard about this from Mexico City, and I heard about this in all kinds of places in the world, that the glass that they didn't use was only for Pesach, but between meat and milk, the shofi, they use glass. My father-in-law, who comes from the most Haredi families of Yerushalayim, in their kitchen had one set of glass utensils that they used for meat and milk the whole year. People weren't rich enough to have the humot that Jews have today. Let's just let's just say it that way. Okay? Can I just unpack that for half a second? When was this Pesach written about not using glass from one to the other? 
sometime in the Rishonim, the early Ashkenazi rabbis. So that's the point, is that was the glass at that point in time so delicate and so impossible to clean really thoroughly that it was too dangerous to even attempt to do such a thing, in which case they therefore issued suck at that point in time that said the glass at this point doesn't allow us to capture it in any meaningful way. But a modern glass is a thoroughly different product to something from a thousand years ago. If you would like to judge those favorably in that way, I will not stand in your path. The Rambam mentions Klei Zechukhit and is kind of vague as to whether they need to be kashered with heat or not. Arab Kapach in source 36, he understands, no, the glass must be kashered the same way that metal has to be kashered. Whether it's non-kosher to kosher use or it's chametz to pesach, a glass has to be kashered. So this is a dissenting opinion. Uh, Rav Kapach says that the Rambam, in his eyes, is very clear that glass requires hechshel. Chachamur Chaliyao in source 37. Also on source 38, also on source 39. Chacham Mordechai says that a glass cannot be captured and that the glass today even has different materials inside of it that make it not the same glass that our Chachami were talking about. And he says the Benish Chai, he says, and he likes to follow the Benish Chai. And when they asked him, why are you following the Benish Chai against Malan? He said, no, I'm following even the Rambam. And the Rambam says the glass has to be captured. Okay, Chacham David Shalush, he also says that glass requires Hachem. Chacham um, Yosef quotes in source 41 that in Egypt, uh, there's in the book of Bnei Huda, and he writes that glass in Egypt, they were careful and they did not use glass between meat and milk uses. And that was the custom also in Damascus. In source 42, Rabbi Shalom Esas writes a, hagdama, a, 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 a letter of approval onto a certain Haggadah. And in there, the Haggadah says that you can't use glass on Pesach that was used for Chametz, and Mishan Lomasaz writes, in source 42, I'm sorry, but you made a mistake. Glass does not require Hechshel at all. And in source 43, he writes, He said, you say that it's a Moroccan custom not to use glass on Pesach. I was among the greatest in Morocco, and I never even heard of this Minhag, let alone seen it. And everybody just washes glass, and that's what they do, and that is the minhag. And he says, if you want to tell me that we should be strict like the Rama, there are many Sephardi rabbis who say that, especially when it comes to Pesach and things like that, we should be strict like the Rama. He says that the Pesach minhagin maran ben that we don't abandon Maran for Pesach to be strict like the Rama. Rather, we accept that that is the case even for Pesach. And so I would say that unless you're familiar with the community that has a different custom, the custom all among the Sevaradim is that glass can be used for all uses. Among the Ashkenazim, glass can be used for all uses with the exception of Pesach. They can be particular not to use it for Pesach. When I was taking my Semichah exams with Rabbi Yehoshua Gerstein, today is my dear friend, Chavuta, many, many years. And he's now the Rabbi of Nachal Haredi, the Israeli army. When we were doing our semifai exams by Harav Peretz, Harav Peretz wouldn't let us out of the exam room until we promised him that if an Ashkenazi Jew would ask, can I use glass for Chametz and Pesach for anything else? You would tell them yes. If you were willing to say yes, he was willing to fail our semifai exam. You have to accept the mitziyut is the reality in the world is that glass simply does not absorb flavor and it does not give off flavor. And you can test this at home. And that brings me, therefore, to perhaps one of the more controversial things I'm going to discuss today. And that is on page nine. 
Okay, is it okay if I uh, interject here? Uh, something similar to what was said by the, the previous commenter, Avraham, was that glass making in during the Roman period was different than glass today. Um, the sages back then in the, in the Talmud said, if you want to waste your money, buy glass utensils. Because, and there's a reason for that, it's because if you go to an old art museum and you see old um, blown or uh, like molded uh, glass, they used to make glass out of just silica. It was melted sand. It wasn't as clear as glass today and it wasn't as smooth as glass today. And it had little bits in it and inclusions in it and it had cracks in it. Um, so uh, Pam, forgive me, just let me interrupt you. Um, in, yeah. in terms of this, what we're dealing with then is a machloket, it's an argument about if, if this is the road that everyone wants to take. You're dealing mm -hmm. now about a machloket bin siyut. It's an argument about reality. The reality of glass. Did glass change? Did glass not change? Is it the same glass? Is it not the same glass? All you have to do is check it out. And if you're telling me the glass of then, fine. But the glass of today, if the minhag of Ashkenaz stems from the fact that glass of yesterday was able to absorb flavor, let's pretend we're going to run down this road, then the glass of today definitely doesn't absorb flavor. And because of that, there should be no more minhag because the minhag doesn't apply to the reality that we have in front of us today. And that's exactly what I'm going to share with you regarding stainless steel. So we talk much about metals that absorb flavors, pots, pans. And I remember sitting in my first semicha classes in Baltimore and hearing this pot absorbed the flavor of the chicken and then it gives off the flavor to here. And then the, and I, listen, I, I grew up in a family where we cook a lot and we have many types of utensils in our homes. And never in my life did I have a situation where one of our metal pots gave off flavor into the food that we're cooking inside of it right now. When it comes to stainless steel, stainless steel, and I, again, I'm not going to use the word non-porous because everything in the world, if you look at it close enough, it's gonna have a pore somewhere. But in terms of absorbance of flavor and therefore imparting flavor into food, stainless steel, you can take my ghost pepper experiment that I told you about earlier with the glass and do it with your stainless steel pot. Go to your fire, boil a thousand ghost peppers in your pot, and then, Wash it out with soap and water, boil water. If you taste the ghost pepper in the water, then I'm wrong. Harabdol Dior, in the Yertashin Ayn Gimel, wrote a very famous letter, in which he suggested that stainless steel must be treated like glass. Because stainless steel is as non-absorbent as glass. At that time, he signed his letter saying, and because this can be perceived as a new halakha instead of the correct understanding of an existing halakha, his whole attitude is, when Maran says metal, Maran says ceramic, Maran says glass, the poskim are not talking about metal, glass, ceramic. They're talking about things that are absorbent like metal, things that are not absorbent like glass, things that are absorbent and can't be kashered like ceramic. But if the metal that we have today falls out of the metal category and goes into the glass category, then the metal we have today is considered glass. And if you want to do what Abraham and Pam were suggesting, I've been to museums here in San Diego, and you should look at the knives that they used to use 100 years ago. Those knives have visible holes inside of them. They're porous like your ceramic pot outside. But the metal that you and I use, especially I'm speaking about stainless steel, stainless steel does not give off flavor. Rabdov Dior was hesitant because this can be perceived as a misreading of halakha. And he said he doesn't want to issue this letter publicly until two other poskim sign on with it. At that time, Harapiritz was teaching a class of Chivon. And he told me, you know, I spoke with Rav Dovio, and I told him I'm willing to be one of the rabbis to sign on with him. And uh, about 
three or four years ago, Halaperetz got up publicly, and for years he was telling us that we should treat stainless steel like glass. It doesn't need a hechsher. But we should never tell people that. And then we should, if someone asks the question, Rabbi, I made a cheese in my meat pot, and yet it's stainless steel, it's okay, but don't tell them it's okay. Tell them it's okay because 24 hours pass. Tell them it's okay because you don't want the meat flavor. Just tell them something else so that people don't get confused. But about three or four years ago, Halaperetz stood up and said that he can't, he can't lie anymore to he can't lie anymore to people asking halakha questions. And the emet is that if you scientifically check your stainless steel, what does scientifically mean? In your kitchen, you will find that the mitziut is that stainless steel does not give up flavor. And if it makes you scared, what I'm telling you right now, then you should be scared to come eat in my home. Because in my home, and now I'm sure that someone is going to make a clip out of this and send it to some rabbi to get me in trouble. That's okay. I'm not afraid. In my home, stainless steel utensils are used for meat and milk and pesach and chametz interchangeably. How long can you live in fantasy land? How long is this, can a person is this applicable to all grades of stainless steel or any particular grade? Abraham, every answer to that question I'm going to tell you, just take the ghost peppers and test it yourself. And with that, you will have the answer to your question. I'm not a, uh, I, don't, I don't own a factory of, of stainless steels and I don't test the grade metals, but the ones, the pots and pans that I have, Moh Hashem have been tested and tried and true. And I'm not afraid. I'm sure that other people will be afraid. I'm not telling you to do anything. Rather, what I'm telling you is to know this in your mind, that when it comes to stainless steel, and then if you think about the world of food production, you think about going to hotels, you think about renting vacation rentals, and your life will become a thousand times easier knowing that you don't have to pretend that all the things on your countertop are hiding little pig flavors inside of them. Because they're not. They're not. Especially, especially... After 24 hours, you're talking about a rabbinic law. And I'm telling you that in a reality situation, in a reality, you're, you're, test the reality, these don't give off flavor. And the tam ki'ika, our rabbis have already ruled for us that when it comes to kashrut, flavor is important. I know that Rabbi, what I'm telling you right now. Yes. Are you suggesting then that, uh, because I follow the same tradition that you're following with the same pots for dairy and for meat, are you suggesting that I don't need to boil them in between? Because that's what I'm doing. I, I'm boiling them in between. Are you saying that now I don't need to boil them, that I just need to wash them? If they are stainless steel pots that do not absorb or give off flavor, yes, those stainless steel pots do not require boiling in between. Just like the glass that you use in your kitchen does not require boiling or burning in between. And I'm Thank speaking, you. I know I'm speaking to the Chavua, and I can't speak in the name of the Chavua, certain the other Tamadei Chavamim who are part of this Chavua, uh, that uh, uh, they are entitled to have their opinion. What I'm sharing with you here in this Kashrut class is that we treat stainless steel exactly the way that Marana Shukhanu treats glass without being a brick. On page and, 11. And, and sorry, presumably, if in the future we invent some high-tech ceramic, and we run the same test with the peppers and we decide the ceramic doesn't appear to absorb, then that would apply to that high-tech ceramic that they invent in the future. It's not loved off stainless steel. Why do you have to go to the future? I'm certain that most of the ceramic utensils you use in your kitchen at the heat in which you use them with the glazing that they have on them today, I'm not certain. I'm not telling you what to do with your ceramics, but test them and you will be very surprised to see that likely they also fall. I'm almost... I'm telling you that in your modern kitchen, you have very few utensils that are left that absorb or give off flavors at all. That's simply the, the reality of food production in the world today. And so I don't have to go to the future. I'm telling you, even today, you can check out your ceramic utensils at home and tell me what you figure out about that. On section 54, 
מרן writes, כלי גדול, שאינו יכול להכניס אותו כלי אחר מחמד גדול. What do you do if you have to kasher your pot? And it doesn't fit anymore into another pot because you don't have a pot that big. You fill it up and you make a, like a, a ceramic, use clay, you make a lip onto the pot so that the pot can get filled. And the water can reach the lip of the pot. And you boil the water inside of that pot and it makes it kasher. Or you take a boiling hot stone or a pit ash or a fire and you throw the stone into the pot and the water will gush over the walls of the pot and then you have now, it makes a terrible mess but you have overflowed your pot in your kitchen and now it is kasher. This has developed into some people thinking that there's a custom that when you kasher your utensils you have to throw pebbles and stones inside of your pots. I never understood why we reached that conclusion uh, but that's not the case. It's only if your pot is too big to be kasher you throw the hot stone, why hot, why not cold? So it doesn't lower the temperature of the water. You throw a hot stone in there and it overflows and that pot is now considered kasher. Now, there's one section of halakhot that I didn't touch today. And that is about the world of kitchens that you're in right now. If you look in section 56, I quoted you almost an entire chapter of Maran Ashukhan. Maran writes, If flavor that is passed off is bad, that flavor is permissible. So let's explain. A pot that was not used in the last 24 hours. Meaning 24 hours have passed since a pig was used in it. The flavor of the pig that it gives off is bad, but nonetheless, the rabbis say, even though 24 hours have passed, you cannot use that pot. Ideally, because maybe you'll come to use a pot within 23 hours. It doesn't make a difference if it was absorbed with pig or absorbed with meat and now you want to make milk. Anything that was absorbed, the rabbis don't allow you to use it after 24 hours, even though technically you could take a meat pot that waited 24 hours and you can make macaroni and cheese inside of it and the meat flavor that would come out of your pot after 24 hours would be pagum. Nonetheless, Chachamim still made a gazara against that. That, though, is only true ideally. Says Maran and Halachava, Stam kile goim hem bechaskat shena bnei yomar. Your average utensil in your kitchen hasn't been used in the last 24 hours. So think about this. Your whole kitchen When's the last time you used a pot in your kitchen? You know which ones you used yesterday, but the majority of the utensils in your kitchen, you haven't used them in the last 24 hours. And that's the case by a non-Jew's kitchen as well. They're considered pots that are not used in the last 24 hours. Therefore, if you use them without kashering them first, the food is considered kasher, because though you violated rabbinic law, it's not enough to make your food not kasher. So food that was cooked in a not kosher pot after 24 hours, what is the status of that food? Were you allowed to cook in it? No. But what is the status of the food that you cook in it? It's kasher. Afal piken, nonetheless, asur lomar lago, you cannot tell the non-Jew, make for me food in your pot, you can't tell a non-Jew to use his pot to make you food because 
by telling him, you are telling him to ideally use his not kosher pot for you. When it comes to buying from vendors of food things, you know that the food pots that they use are designated only for the type of food that they sell. And then Maran writes, The same way that non-Jews pots and pans have not been used in the last 24 hours, so two hours have not been used in the last 24 hours either. And if you jump up to Halakhat David, Maran writes, A non-kosher pot. Okay, this is not what I want to read to you. Here, a utensil that absorbed only a little bit of not kosher food. It's a big pot. It absorbed a little bit of things, not the whole pot worth. If you live in a situation, you have a situation, you have a big pot, a big chamin pot, there's a little bit of pig that was cooked on the bottom of it. But now you're coming to make kosher chamin, and you're going to fill up that whole pot. It means that you know already that the, there is more kosher food in your pot than there ever was non-kosher absorption in your pot. You can ideally use that big utensil to make a lot of food, knowing that there is absorption of pig inside of that pot, because it's now already considered something that you don't have to be concerned about the halakha. When it comes to our food production scenarios, many of these... Can you repeat the last point? What, what was the last point with the, sorry, with the big pot? The big pot, the big pot that you fill with chamin, and there's a little bit of pig that was cooked in there previously. Now it's clean, but it absorbed it to the walls of the pot. You are, I, even l'chathila, allowed to use that pot to make kosher food. The reason? You will never be able to taste the pig inside of that pot because there's simply not enough pig to overpower the flavor of the chamin. And that's exactly the same halakha that I'm telling you about elsewhere, which is if the flavor, if there's no way that that flavor will be imparted into your food, then like stainless steel and like glass, the food that you cook, you can do that ideally inside of the same pot and there's nothing to be concerned about. I mean, there's precedent even in pots that can absorb flavor. But so long as the amount of flavor that I'm going to impart is not enough to be tasted in this huge quantity of food that you've now made, you can, it's not that if you cooked on the pot, it's okay. You can ideally cook inside of that pot, knowing that there is a little bit of non-kasher flavor absorbed inside of it. Um, this here ends my theoretical side of this conversation. Allow me please to have the last 10 minutes. I wanna run you through a list of things that need to be kashered and how you kasher them. Uh, and then I will stick around here to talk with you about everything in the world you wanna talk about. I will stay here, it's for me, it's only, uh, almost two o'clock in the afternoon. So I have all day to sit here with you. Uh, let me read a few excerpts from my book that I put here. If anyone needs a copy of my book and you haven't been able to afford it or get it for some reason, please send an email to marlene at shiviti.org, S-H-I-V-I-T-I. And uh, she will make sure that we can find a way to get a copy to you. Uh, in my book, there are essentially five steps you have to do when kashra the utensil. The first, the utensil should be cleaned completely of any type of residue. When they ask me how clean, Imagine you wanted to sell this to somebody else and you wanted it to look clean. The second, make sure that you wait 24 hours from its last use. The reason, after 24 hours, all utensils are considered kasher on a biblical level. The only prohibition is on a rabbinic level. It's much easier to deal with kashrut mess ups 
when you're dealing with rabbinic prohibitions than when you are dealing with biblical prohibitions. The third, on Pesach, you should kasher your pots and pans before the time that you have to stop eating chametz. The reason being, chametz on Erev Pesach, you're allowed to eat it. In that point in time, the chametz is not considered a prohibited food. But five hours into the day, chametz already now becomes a problem. And it can be a problem. It's not impossible, but it could be a problem to make your chametz utensils kasher once you wait past that, I don't know if it's 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. And so it's better to do them earlier than that. The kashering method must be applied until the desired heat is reached. And number five, you rinse that kashering utensil in cold water. Uh, I feel that there was a source that I put here that I didn't read to you. Uh, did anyone oh, see this? Rabbi Yitzhak Abadi. There was a source from him that I quoted. Mm-hmm. Yes, forgive me. Jump with me back to source 10, uh, source 50 on page 10. Rabbi Yitzhak Abadi was asked about modern day ovens. And Rabbi Abadi writes that you are allowed to do ibun when you talk about fire. So the things that are used in the barbecue, you have to catch them in the barbecue. But most of what we consider needing ibun are things that we use with dry heat in the oven. Rabbi Abadi says you can just take those utensils and put them in the oven and turn on the oven on a high heat for about half an hour. And then the oven has now captured all of your utensils inside of your oven that require the libun. Which kind of libun? Not the libun of the fire, but the libun of the oven. The same thing might be true. I'll add for you here. I discusses once the pellets. Uh, if you've ever seen a commercial dishwasher before, you know what I'm talking about? It's a long machine that has a conveyor belt that goes around and washes, so we're gonna pour boiling hot water. Utensils that need to be kashered by having boiling hot water poured on them can be kashered in such a dishwasher. I'm gonna say it right now. They also can be kashered in your dishwasher at home. So utensils that don't need to be boiled in a pot, but they only need to have hot water boiled on them. You can put them inside of your dishwasher at home and run a hot cycle. And that hot cycle will kasher your forks and your knives and your spoons and all of those things that don't actually need to be boiled because they're not used in a pot. They can just be kashered inside of your dishwasher. And I ask that you don't put soap in there because there's a fundamental makhluk that whether or not the water has to be pure water or you can add soap or other things. And it's better to kasher things only with clear water. That being said, I'm going to run you through a list of things that you have in your kitchen, and I will tell you exactly how it is that they need to be kasher. And this applies to Pesach and to year-round. And remember, please, that this book was written before I told you anything about stainless steel, so uh, some things may not be the same here. Pots. Pots on the fire require kashering on the fire, so hagalah in a pot on the fire. Frying pans. There's a machloket between frying pans. For sefaradim. Frying pans are considered something that is used as a liquid. There's oil, let's say fry eggs, there's oil. Ashkenazim are concerned, what happens about the part of the pan that is not covered in liquid at that moment? And so we say the use of the frying pan is with liquids, and according to Maran, it only requires Hagalah. Ashkenazim would say that a frying pan requires Libun. Baking pans require Libun, but how do you do Libun in this case? by putting them back inside of your oven and putting them on whatever the high temperature is, not self-clean, just a high temperature, and that's how you capture them. Silverware. Silverware is normally used in a second utensil off the fire, put into there. And therefore, you really need a very low level of heat to capture them. You could either pour hot water over them or put them in your dishwasher on a hot cycle. Serving utensils that are actually used in the pot or pan, so cooking utensils, require capturing, 
in a boiling hot pot of water. Cups. Cups require hadakha. Uh, I'm talking about cold cups. Cups that are used for heat. If they're not glass and you wanted to, you could kasher them in other ways. But again, uh, likely they don't require kashering at all. Skewers, they use in the grill. They require libun in a grill, so in a fire. Your oven won't be good enough for that. Grills. Grills require libun. So you want to make your barbecue. The difficult part about a barbecue, twofold. One, barbecues are one of the few places left in the world where people are still using cast iron. I know some of you have gotten into the cast iron cookware in your kitchen. But cast iron is absorbent material. So one, it requires thorough cleaning. You have to clean those grates well. And then it requires burning. If you manage to do that, then the boom will be enough on your grill. Your oven, your oven, as I read to you in the first class, you'll recall that Maran writes that you can cook meat and milk in the same oven. And therefore the myth that is, there is a meat oven or a dairy oven is just that, it's a myth. There is no such halakha in the shulkanu. And because of that, you don't have to capture your oven between meat and milk. If on Pesach, there are those who are strict and they require libun for an oven from chametz to Pesach. It's just a chuma of Pesach. And so I tell you, clean out your oven and run a hot cycle, not a self-clean cycle. Too many houses have burned down because of self-clean cycles on Pesach. Please just put it on the highest temperature in your oven. Let it go for how long? Until it's going to burn your hand if you touch it. Don't touch it. I'm not telling you to touch it. Just If you were to touch the oven inside, it would burn your hand. That's how long it has to be captured. Half an hour? An hour, and you can figure out your own. Microwaves. Microwaves do not require cashering at all. The reason is very simple. A microwave oven, by nature of how it works, does not actually become hot inside. You can heat something in your microwave for 10 minutes. You open the microwave and you touch the wall of the microwave. The microwave is not hot. And because of that, it doesn't require cashering. And even the glass plate there, the glass plate is glass. It doesn't require kashering. There are those who are strict. They are worried about the steam that's inside of the oven. So what I can tell you is that perhaps what you would want is to steam a cup of water in there. But that's really a khuma. All you have to do is make sure the microwave is clean and a microwave does not need kashering at all. Toaster oven. If you're using... What? Microwave doesn't need kashering? At all. <laughs> if, um, if you're yes. using a um, plastic... Yeah, no, not plastic. If you're using utensils, a microwave, uh, microwaveable um, utensils, um, to reheat food, um, does that um, those um, can get quite hot? Um, can you, you uh, is that do they have the same status as glass in that sense? Microwave. Mi- what is your microwave utensil? Disposable plastic. What is it? Yeah, like uh, I can get one, um, but they're like. What is it made out of? Is it plastic? I don't know. Maybe somebody else in the call knows what I'm talking about. They're plastic. They're plastic, and they're heated from the food that is cooked within the microwave. Okay, are they reusable plastic? I'm gonna yes. get one. Yeah. Yes. yes. So I, I I know what you're talking about. Uh, my he knows, opinion on plastic. He knows. My opinion on plastic is that plastic is yeah. that has. I'm asking about food grades of different grades of steel. Plastic comes the same way. There's plastic. I remember the plastic cups they had in the yeshiva. They smelled like whatever the guy before me drank. And if you had bad breath, you smelled the bad breath in that cup. No matter how well you washed it. And then there's plastic that's almost like glass. It's, it stays clear. It stays clean. It doesn't get stained by even by turmeric or anything else. It depends on the plastic if it's able to be captured. Plastic should be captured in some type of heat fashion. So or pouring hot water on it, depending on its use. I would be captured. And unless it's very high quality plastic, which doesn't give up flavor at all, in which case there's nothing to worry about. 
when I say a toaster oven, I'm talking about a, a toaster oven that looks like a miniature oven just on your countertop. That toaster oven requires to be, again, cleaned well and then turned on for half an hour or longer takes for it to get as hot as it can. Rabbi, sure. Rabbi, can I, Rabbi, can I go back where you said mentioned about microwave ovens and yes. and it, microwave ovens in the workplace, um, where they may not be cleaned, but if you were to go in, or the or the cleaner goes in just before you use it, you use it straight after, um, putting it in plastic bags and putting your utensils, double wrapping and those sorts of things. How necessary is that? So, you know, I've seen different microwaves in my life. I've seen, I was once in a, a boy's dormitory and I went to see their microwave and there were, there were organisms living in that microwave. There were new creatures that have not yet been discovered that were living in that microwave. And so everyone's microwave is different. Sometimes you'll notice there are some things that are more pungent than others. So if you make a bag of popcorn in a microwave and that taste actually lingers for a little bit inside of the microwave. My assumption here is like yours, that the microwave was just cleaned and there's nothing being given off into your food. And in that case, if you wanted to be strict, I would just say to, to cover it if you wanted to keep your the splatter away from anything else. But aside from that, uh, the microwave can be used assuming that it is clean. When I say clean, I mean clean, not like there's stuff stuck to the top from the last person's food. Luckily, no, and no, double wrapping, no double wrapping is required in the set. I mean, I know you're going to say no, but I, in, what's the reason why people will double wrap if they're using... That's uh, a really good question. I have a whole list of questions you should ask them. If you want to know the reason, I'll give you a list of questions to ask those people when you go talk to them. Uh, for right now, a toaster with bread slices. I don't even know why it's practical to cash that for Pesach, but assuming you needed to, you would clean it out and then you would uh, just toast it until it gets hot enough that if you touch it, you get burned. A blender. A blender should be checked for cleanliness and then it should be cleaned from any residue. There are some new blenders like Vitamixes, which you can actually boil soup in them. You leave them on for 17 minutes and they'll cook your soup. Uh, the case with that is that likely it's made out of glass and stainless steel, which doesn't require hafshara. But if you do have one that's plastic or you want to be machshirit, then you would just do the same thing. You would take the hot water and you would let it blend for 17 minutes until it became hot like that. And that's the way that it would be kashir. Same with food processors. Ra coffee Rabbi, makers. I have Sorry, I have a question. It's Brenda. Um, what about an air yeah. fryer? Say uh, an air fryer. Say oh, ask, is, is, uh, everyone asking about air fryers. I don't have an air fryer. My niece called me up about her air fryer, and I don't understand for life me how the thing works. So I'm I've told her that I will go to Costco just to take a look at the air fryer. But right now I can tell you that I've never actually used an air fryer, and because of that, I feel bad. But I'm really not. I I, I don't want to sound like those rabbis who say things and they don't know what they're talking about. I don't want to talk about something I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, but if you okay, follow up with me later <laughs> in the week, I would have to go check out what an air fryer works and looks like. Coffee thank makers. you so much. There is, thank you. I've never in my life met a not cashier coffee, so I'm not sure why you have to cashier your coffee. But let's say you wanted to, just wash it out well. Same with the hot water urn, same with the tea kettle. Uh, storage jars, like where they store the little tea bags, if they wanted to cashier that, just wash them out well. Uh, plastic containers is what I mentioned before. Pressure cookers. Pressure cookers, uh, both the cooker itself and that rubber lining require some type of Haganah, unless the cooker itself is stainless steel, in which case just the rubber lining has to be put in a boiling uh, pot of hot water. Uh, a hot plate, a plata, a blech, the things that people use on Shabbat. And um, yeah, sometimes food randomly will spill over it, but it does not actually require kashering. You're not ever eating off of that. If you wanted to, uh, you could pour hot water over it if you really were inclined to. Stovetops. Uh, Stovetops are an interesting halakha. The halakha is that 
you don't have to cash yourself tax. Why don't you have to cash yourself tax? Because you don't need after yourself tax. You don't have a pot that's under stove tax. And uh, for Pesach, you're not going to cash your stove tax. Just like you don't cash your stove tax between meat and milk, then you also don't have to cash it between Chametz and Pesach. But, but, last time I said that, someone told me, in my house, we have two stoves, one for meat and one for milk. Well, I don't know anymore which reality everyone lives in. But in most people's homes, I would argue that they have the same stovetops for meat and milk. And the only halakha that is relevant there is when something falls out of your pot onto the stovetop. So you're making pasta again. The pasta falls out. And you shouldn't eat the pasta that fell out. Because likely, it could be absorbed from whatever other flavors are there, or the residue that's there. And so you should treat whatever falls out of the pot as something that you don't eat. If you really want it to cash your stovetop, if it's a glass stovetop, like a flat glass stovetop, it requires no cashing. Just scrub the well and clean it. If it's a metal one, you're welcome to clean it and then turn on those coils until they get hot for 15 minutes. How long does it take to get hot? 10 minutes. And in which case, your stovetop is now kasher. And nice sinks. What about sinks? Tell me about sinks. Uh, people are always cashering their sinks. I mean, they have a meat sink and a milk sink. And if you remember class one, I told you that you could put all your pots and pans in the same sink. That's what Shukhan says. But let's pretend you have sinks and now you want to make it kasher the pesach. So they sell these plastic inserts that you put inside of your sinks and uh, the only good thing those plastic inserts the only thing they're good for is to collect bacteria at the bottom of your sink aside from that there is no halakhic purpose for cashing your sink you don't cook in your sink you don't eat out of your sink hopefully you don't eat out of your sink and there's no situation in which you can think of that your sink is going to make your food not kasher if you really wanted to you could pour hot water over your sink uh, and this Rabbi, and, and so that means it doesn't matter whether your sink is a stainless steel sink or whether it's a ceramic sink. Correct. It doesn't matter what your sink is made of. That's correct. Thank you. And when it comes to dishwashers, dishwashers are like sinks in the sense that Malan writes that you're allowed to boil meat and milk dishes together that are dirty as long as there is soap in the water. The same halakha applies to dishwashers. You're welcome to see the three different opinions that I quoted there at length on your own time. If you really wanted to cashier your dishwasher, all you'd have to do, maybe run one cycle to clean it out with soap and then one for the trapeza, say. Then one cycle to let it go clean just to cashier itself. That would be a stringency upon a stringency. Countertops. What I'm about to tell you is in direct contradiction to what Magana Shukhano seems to say. But if you recall what I told you, that it's about categories and not about actual details. Magana Shukhano says that you have to cashier your stovetops by pouring water on top of them. Shukhanot and Tevot. In Magana's world, People ate directly off of their tables and countertops. And we are talking about a situation in our modern kitchen today. When's the last time that you took uh, a boiling hot brisket out of your pot that was in the uh, pan in the oven and you slapped it down on your countertop directly and then sliced that boiling hot brisket on top of your countertop and then put it back in the pan without using a cutting board? Now, even if you did that, even if it happened once or randomly a spot of the juice flew onto the countertop, what? What are the chances that within 24 hours, you're going to, in the same exact spot on that countertop, going to drop milk or chametz or, or pesach or whatever it is in that same spot? And then not only you're going to drop it, but then you're going to lick it off the counter once it dropped in that spot. What are the chances? And so in our reality today, there's really no reason to cash your countertops at all, their tables. Uh, my mother-in-law, she should live and be well, kashers her countertops, and, and then she closes the kitchen, and she kashers her table, and then covers it with seven tablecloths. And when I asked her why seven tablecloths, she told me if she had eight, she would put eight tablecloths also. Uh, but that's not actually the halakha. Mori Halakha, he once 
uh, came home to his house and he saw that his wife or somebody in his house, likely it was not his wife, uh, covered the, all the countertops. They came to help grandma and grandpa with the kosher for Pesach cleaning and they covered all the countertops with foil. And our parents asked whoever was responsible and said, did you cover the foil because of kashrut or did you cover it with foil because you like the way it looks? And the person said, Rabbi, what's the difference? Says, if you did it for kashrut, I'm going to rip it off the countertop right now. But if you did it because you're decorating the house, I don't get involved. You can decorate the house however you want to decorate the house. You walk into some people's kitchens for Pesach, for example, and it looks like you're in a UFO spaceship. You're, you're all around you is covered with aluminum foil. What did they do before they had aluminum foil? What did all the chachamim do? Lomuvan. The tables, the same thing. Just make sure they're clean. Mixing bowls that are used for cold foods, the same thing as clean. Crock pot, that's an interesting question. Crock pots often are made of ceramic. And if you really need to cash your crock pot for Pesach or you bought it at a thrift store, you're welcome to contact me privately. Uh, rolling pins, uh, rolling pins that are used for bread shouldn't be used for Pesach. It's very hard to clean them. But uh, there are obviously ways to clean rolling pins and use them for the rest of the year. Drying racks where you put your dishes. Again, you don't eat off of those drying racks. Uh, there's nothing to worry about. Chargers, which are the things, the fancy plastic plates that go under your plates that you can't eat from, you know, that, you know what I'm talking about? People have them in their homes. Uh, I guess more things they want to wash. And so those chargers, you don't actually eat from them and all you have to do is make sure they're clean. Refrigerators and freezers. You don't eat off of the shelves of your refrigerators or your freezers. Some people like to line them. They have different shelves for meat and milk. Uh, okay, I don't know what to tell you about that. But in terms of, of um, Pesach, for example, People line their refrigerators with paper. The only thing that can happen is you're going to disturb the airflow of your refrigerator and your refrigerator might break or your food might spoil. But you're not getting any extra credit points in Shaman for covering the shelves of your refrigerators. And that means that all of these utensils, if you were to bump into them in a hotel or in another person's home or anything else that might happen, uh, that would be not a problem at all. This is the that I'm not going to do today. My time has come to end. I want to summarize what I told you today. And that is, there are things that require hefshe. And to remember that after 24 hours, most things are already bidi'avad, okay. They were used, they're fine. But in order to ideally use them, you have to be makshirwe. Utensils that absorb and give off flavor, there are three categories in hefshe. Libun, hagana, and hadakha. Those are the three categories. And there are five steps on how to cash utensils. And to be aware of the different types of materials that we use, such as glass and stainless steel, that don't have any absorption or uh, imparting a flavor at all. And therefore, you don't have to concern yourself with kashrin them at all. And now when it comes to visiting other people and eating in other people's homes and seeing them, perhaps the laws of kashrut will be able to bring people closer instead of bringing people farther away. Somebody asked me why I named my book Yehi Shalom. The truth, Yehi Shalom is my name. Yonatan Yaakov Hanavi spells Yehi and Shalom is my father's name, Shabbat Diwal. Uh, but really, I believe that if we properly understood the laws of kashrut, we would be shalom. There would be a lot of peace, a lot of peace between people uh, that don't trust each other and don't eat with each other and don't visit each other and don't. Everything is based on distrust, and all the pigs are hiding in all the corners of every kitchen, and every person is not reliable, and everyone is not trustworthy. And this attitude is the exact opposite of the model in which our family operated. Uh, I want to thank you for learning with me today. I'm here. I'm going to stick around for as long as anyone needs me. I apologize for going a little bit over time, and God willing. I look to see you. Uh, I look forward to seeing you next week. Ohad, I'm handing over the chavalat to you. Thank you so much, Chacham. That was extremely informative and uh, incredible. Uh, uh, 
And we'll take uh, questions now, and uh, everyone can raise their hands if they have any questions. We'll stop the recording. Thank you.